Hello, JudgeCast listeners. This is Jess Dunks, one of the hosts of JudgeCast. In order to keep our fortnightly schedule, that is every other week, on track for the Magic 2019 core set release notes, JudgeCast has taken the week off. In the meantime, we're re-releasing one of our most popular episodes ever, an interview we did with Jared Silva about investigations. There's some talk about IPG changes in this episode, obviously those may be out of date, but the core topic is full of info that's still useful and relevant to judges everywhere. If you're a long-time listener, this may also give you some CJ Schrader nostalgia, so bonus! JudgeCast will be back with new episodes next week. Sorry, kids, the grown-ups are talking. Welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode number 111. My name is CJ Schrader, and with me, as always, my two investigative co-hosts. First off, we have Jess Dunks. Hello, this is Jess. Jess, I didn't laugh at the opening of this one. And I, I, I noticed. We have Brian Perlman. I'm king of the lab. <laughs> Uh, yes. Hey. I thought you were gonna. I, got, I thought you were gonna save that for the, the ending. Actually, I I I got overly excited. <laughs> All right. Well, we're overly excited to have a very special guest host on. We have the one and only Jared Silva. Hello, everybody. Hey, Jared. How are you doing? All right. Doing well. That uh, Jared, you've been on JudgeCast before, right? I have. Yeah. At least, yep. at least once. I think it's just once. Okay. Yes, when he when he was when he was when he still had that uh that new L four smell. Ah, yes, that's that's. Oh no, we okay. Well, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we had Sea Cat on for the new L four smell. Well, we also had we have lots of. I mean, look, each L four has a unique new smell. Oh, okay. And we, so we, we want to experience to, all of them. We have to experience it all. Okay, that makes sense. Well, uh. <laughs> <laughs> are you regretting coming back on a second time? Not yet, not yet, but I'm sure that I've got I've got plenty of opportunity to. So, Jared's um, L4 smell smells a little stale by this point, but luckily we're not here to talk about that. Uh, it's, it's mostly the kids. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Uh, was, was it smell? It smells like tapioca pudding, right? You know, or yogurt I, yeah. or yogurt melts or whatever. The last time you were on, I remember we were talking. I remember we did talk about um, your daughter's name because your wife didn't know at that point that it was a magic character. Uh, well, no, I had to tell her that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she 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 suggested Liliana, uh, actually Lillian, uh -huh. and I yeah. kind of twisted it a little bit into Liliana. I said, full disclosure. Uh, you should know this before this happens That's because uh, it'll come up a couple of times. Oh, um, so it but, wasn't disclosure uh, after the birth certificate had been signed. <laughs> no, no, it was it was earlier on. But uh, the I think I probably mentioned, but I'll I'll tell it again. The other name that we were considering was uh, Talia, and um, this was before Dark Ascension. So oh, yeah, yeah, my yeah. Uh, my daughter was born actually just before Talia was spoiled. And so we would have made it up until the birth and signing the birth certificate. And then they would have spoiled the card with her name on it <laughs> like the next day. That's funny. Oh, and then it would have been like, you and, knew. Yeah. And I'd be like, I swear I didn't know anything. <laughs> and I actually didn't know anything, but it, that would have been a better story, I think. But um uh, second child is named Aurelia, and again, that was uh, a Heather suggested name that uh, I had to inform her had some ties to uh, to magic. 
<laughs> but uh, a little bit less of a mainstream character. So uh, for those interested, Jared was last on in episode 51, which was Oof. in October 2012. A long, long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's been a, been a minute. <laughs> it's, it's been a minute, yes. <laughs> and, and surprisingly, we're actually going to be talking about a topic that uh, we had, uh, I think we covered in like one of the 40s. Yeah, it was um, back back in the roaring forties. Yeah, episode forty four. We were still pretty new at this in episode forty four. Yes, so, we were. Yeah. Um. So we're going to be talking about investigations today. Did you mention that already? No, I was just about to. Oh, sorry. No, you did it. Um. So uh, yeah, we're going to talk things. about it's. Uh, I really enjoy this topic every time it comes up because I always learn something. Um. No matter how many times I've done an investigation, every time I have to do one, every I talk about them with somebody, I get to learn new things. So it's always an exciting topic for me. Um. So I'm very glad that we're we're tackling this right. one. I would also say investigations, if I had to guess, is the most requested uh, seminar at any judge conference. Yeah. yeah um. There. There's a lot of interest in it. Uh, I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding of it. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who's been involved in the level three process, uh, it's a roadblock for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people really don't know how to attack a situation where you don't have all the information and you need all of the information. <laughs> um, and so uh, Eric Shukan actually just did a great series of articles um, talking about collateral truths which is once you develop uh, a narrative of what you think happened, being able to then go and look for other things that would support that or refute it. So once you say, I think this is what happened, figuring out what would change your mind or what would reinforce that story, and then you go and look for that piece of information. And, and by going and getting those collateral truths, those auxiliary pieces of information to shore up or break down uh, your picture of what happened, um, you are able to better go and figure out what what occurred, and then make your ruling off of that. Because at the at the heart of investigations is your goal is to figure out what happened, and then if you can do that, judging becomes really simple because we all know what to do if we know what happened. We have a pretty clear picture from the IPG; it lays it out pretty clearly. But an investigation comes into play any time that you're presented with a situation that you didn't directly witness. So when you walk up to a table and someone's called for a judge and they want you to rule on something, you're ruling on something that you don't have direct knowledge of. You have to use your investigation to gather knowledge from those players about what happened so that you can then take the next step to making a ruling. Yeah, so... Uh... As is my curse, you mentioned Eric Shukan's email, which means I will be adding them to the show notes. So if people <laughs> want to find those, I will uh, I will add those articles to the show notes. So those were a really good three series of yeah, uh, I read them too. of articles, uh, uh, including including how to tell when uh, you're done yes. <laughs> investigating. <laughs> Which is which was is very nice. It's a very good skill to have is to realize when you kind of got everything that you're gonna get. Yeah, there's, um, there's a tendency once you start digging into something to just want to keep digging, and yeah, you know, being able to say, you know what, I I could go and get more, but it's gonna take too much time for it to be worth it. That's that's a skill in and of itself. So when we when we last had uh or or you take. 
uh, you take a groups of groups of judges and you have uh, constructed a workshop on mm -hmm. investigations. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, um, I've done. It's now been about two years that I've been doing these. Um, the investigations workshop is something that we we put together, uh, and by we, uh, me, Jason Reedy, uh, Steven Zwanger, uh, Jason Flatford, uh, did a whole bunch of work putting together some scenarios um, where we have the actual cards, uh, we have a layout of what exactly happens in the game, um, and that's actually played out by the participants, and then there's a judge call, at which point one of the members of the workshop comes in, acts as the judge, and answers the call and investigates what happens. Uh, one of the things that I think makes it a unique learning opportunity is that we try and do it with small groups that range anywhere from two to five judges, and all of the judges who aren't responding to the call sit and watch everything that happens. And so you'll have a situation where we'll play through an entire game, six or seven turns, and the people watching will see things go wrong. And you'll be able to go back through in your mind and say, okay, well, I think that this happened. I think that that happened. But the, uh, the observers don't say anything. They don't interact until after the judge call is done. And then as the moderator of the workshop, I can talk through uh, with the judge who responded, ask them questions, and then we can spin off to some of the observers um, because the judge can say, well, I think that this happened. And then instead of just kind of talking about that, I can turn to one of the people who watched it happen and say, you know, is that right? You know, do you think that that's, do you agree with him that that's what happened? You were sitting here watching, so... Yeah, did he get it figured out right? And that's a really powerful thing to be able to directly engage everybody in the in the workshops. Um, the scenarios range from uh, very simple interactions at the table to more complex situations that you know are you know a ten minute judge call or may go into a, a disqualification if you go down a certain path. But um, most of them focus directly on the at-the-table interactions that we see at every event. And just digging into those and talking about the strategies for attacking them uh, is a very va valuable uh, exercise, I found. So it's a, it's a workshop on investigations, but the focus isn't necessarily on cheating? No, the focus is on the investigations that a floor judge would run into at any given event. Um, anytime that someone's hand goes up in the air and they call for a judge, you're doing some level of investigation. Obviously, there are investigations that are much more complex, but uh, one of the, the perceptions that I see a lot that I, I would like to correct is that investigations only involve DQs and only involve situations where you think that someone is cheating. A lot of times when a judge says, oh, I was involved in an investigation, they mean that they were involved in an investigation into whether or not someone was cheating. But when you walk up to a table and someone says, my opponent did X, and you then need to ask a couple more questions to clarify exactly what that means, then you're investigating. Anytime that you are gathering information and coming to a conclusion, that's an investigation. And I think that a lot of judges sell themselves short in their experience because they don't consider the calls that they take on the floor to have any investigations uh, material or any 
any investigation component. And so when they're presented with a situation where they think that someone's cheating, in their mind, they're going from never having done an investigation directly to having to investigate this exceptionally complex situation where you have to tell whether someone's lying or not. You have to figure out uh, different pieces of, of, of evidence that you can either support their story or break their story down. And you have to uh, kind of attack their story in a certain way that either corners them or exonerates them. And it's very hard to get into a mental state where you feel that you can do that if you don't feel that you have any experience. And the truth is, by the time that anybody runs into that situation, they actually have a lot of experience in more straightforward investigations that they can lean on for those types of, of complex investigations. Cool. So... It's it's almost like just if you do it enough times, uh, you start to you start to develop the skills necessary so that when you are confronted with something more complicated and something more shady, you're able to pick up on that and go down the correct paths much much faster. Yeah, if you if you build on the fundamental building blocks of an investigation, you're going to find that a lot of those cross over. Um, you're also going to find that you lay a better foundation for. Uh, getting to the truth in those more complex situations because you, if you know how to investigate simple situations, you know how to investigate different types of situations, then you're able to form a better picture of what you think happened and then try to uh, align that with the story that you're getting from the person that you think may be cheating. Cool. All right. So you have uh, uh, so that's one of the one, the big difference. Uh, so we did an investigation podcast almost three years ago, and with uh, with Eric Levine, and the focus was on how to determine if you know questions to ask to determine if if someone is is cheating. Um, so Jared's on, and we're going to be discussing you know uh, styles of interactions, types of investigations that don't necessarily. Uh, uh, involve involve cheating, and they're they're more they're more of the run of the mill type uh, calls that you would get. Yeah, at a, um, at an event. one of one of the uh, one of the the ways that that actually David Rappaport put it is you want to put tools in your toolbox because you want to be able to come up to a situation and see that it's a missed trigger and say, you know what, I know how to deal with this. I can reach into my toolbox and I can pull out these these ways to attack this problem. You know, if you're a if you're a handyman and you come up come to a Phillips head screwdriver screw, you need a Phillips head screwdriver. If you don't have a Phillips head screwdriver and you have to use a flathead, you might be able to do something with it, but it's not going to be as effective. So if you the more tools that you put in your toolbox, the more strategies that you have to attack specific things, the the easier it's going to be when you come to a table, identify the situation that you're in, and then you're able to attack it with a specific strategy. Okay. Uh, so when you uh, uh, so let's let's talk about the 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 types you, you've got here uh, styles of interactions. So mm-hmm. these are these are these are I guess flavors of judge calls in terms of how you are interacting with the players? Yeah, and this kind of goes even before you start digging into what are the players asking about. Uh, you're one of The first thing you see and the first thing that you're going to experience with players is kind of how you're going to interact with them. Um, in my experience, most judge calls 
uh, are what I call cooperative, which is the two players may disagree on what happens, but they're pr- but they're they're not really arguing about the events that occurred. They they are arguing about the outcome. Someone thinks that well, you know, when these two cards interact, uh, this guy's going to die, or and the other guy says, well, no, because of X, Y, or Z. And what they need is an answer from a judge. And they need a, a higher authority to step in and say, here's what actually happened. And in a lot of those situations, you know, you're not going to split the players up. You're, you're going to talk at the table. And the biggest thing is making sure that you get a clear picture of what they're explaining and any important points about, you know, timing or anything along those lines that's going to inform your ruling. But you don't have any sort of problems between the players you they just don't know what happened um or or disagree on on the rules or one of them doesn't one of them thinks that you're slightly off from the other one but they're not disagreeing on what occurred and so that's a very that's usually a very simple type of interaction where you're asking questions getting answers and getting confirmation from both the players um and honestly that encompasses most of the judge calls that you get um, mostly people want to figure out what's going on and then get on with their day. Um, so that's, that's always good. That's always positive. And, uh, the, the problem that I see come up with that a lot is that a lot of judges, once they start getting into investigations and they start thinking about investigations, they start getting all these strategies, which are sometimes very valid, like splitting up players and they start applying them everywhere. And when you have cooperative players, you want to keep things simple. You want to keep things straightforward. And above all, in my opinion, you want to keep things at the table because if the players are being helpful and the players are, you know, kind of on pretty much the same page, then you create a situation where if you keep it at the table and you say something incorrect, you now have two people who are ready to help you out and correct it. And so, if you're taking in information and then you're saying, okay, so here's what I think happened. You've got two people who can correct you on that um, or two people who can confirm. And if you're taking people apart, then um, you only have one of those two people who is able to give input. And so in general, most, most rulings, you're going to stay at the table through the whole ruling. You're going to talk back and forth. You want to control the flow a bit more, a bit, but it's um, it's not about separation or anything along those lines. You just want to work with both players to get to the right place. Okay, cool. So that's that's when both players are forthcoming and yep. everything's on the level, and you're you're you know, no spidey sense or or problems or anything like that. Uh, yep. Are there other what uh what other sorts of interactions are there? Um, so one of kind of the flag types of interactions is when uh, one player is evasive. Um, if they are now, this can happen because they simply don't know. But uh, the reason it's a flag is because there are times when the most convenient answer for somebody who did something wrong is to not know, because it's very hard to prove that somebody doesn't know does know something that they're telling you that they don't know. And so if you have somebody who's pretty clear on how the first four turns of the game went and then suddenly gets hazy about turn five and six, which happened more recently, that's that's a flag that you might need to dig into things a little bit more. And when you start seeing that, um, that's that's something to 
you know, maybe you you no longer have a situation where you're sure that both players are being straight with you. And you actually have a flag that one of them may be trying to, even if not directly deceive you, they may be trying to leave pieces of the story out, hoping that you aren't able to fill them in and come to a conclusion uh, that is to their benefit because of the missing information. So what... Okay. what uh... When you come up to a player like that, when you go, when you start asking them questions and it appears that they start becoming evasive, mm -hmm. um, how should you start to change what you're doing from what you would do if it was a cooperative player? Uh, so if you have an evasive player, it becomes very important to ask very specific questions. Um, in general, I like to avoid very general questions because a lot of times you wind up asking a question that the players actually can't really answer. Um, what turn is it? Um, is It's not a general question. It's a specific question, but it's also asking for a very broad base of information. That You're asking them to fill in pieces that um, are, you know, you don't really expect somebody to know, oh, it's turn 15 or it's turn 13. Even you get to turn 6 or 7, people aren't necessarily, that's not necessarily nailed down. Now, if you turn that into, you know, have you missed a land drop this this game? That's a more concrete piece of information that they may know. Um, with somebody who gets evasive, you want to start asking about as many specifics as possible because it's going to the the questions that they answer will be more of more use to you, and the questions that they don't answer will kind of target you in on what they're being evasive about. And what they're being evasive about may actually be something they don't know, but it's going to be easier to figure that out if you have specifics that they are not answering about rather than more general questions. Okay. So that's, uh, that's we've got cooperative, we've got evasive, but is there, is there a, a, if you have players that aren't cooperative but aren't evasive what's is that a is that a category so the third category that that i lay out there is combative which is and i think most people have have handled rulings like this where by the time you get to the table the two players disagree pretty strongly and may even be you know yelling at each other or actively hostile towards each other um we've many Judges have also dealt with the player whose strategy in a ruling is to badger the judge. And, you know, so you don't have a situation where they're going after the opponent. You have a situation where they're actually trying to push you into a specific ruling. And in those situations, the most important thing is to take control of the situation. Uh, where in the situation where the two players are going at each other, the first thing to do is to redirect them to you take control of the situation and one of the things that I like to do is to actually physically go into the the game space and put my hand in the middle of the table and make them have to react to me because if they're reacting to me then they're no longer going at each other and so you have kind of a, a basic physical separation which can sometimes calm it down and it, it and once they start working through you um, that can make for a much more civil interaction. Uh, the other piece of that is you can also go as far as separating the players, uh, but I don't like to get to that step until 
I try some some steps in between. I've I've had some situations where I've had to tell the players it's like I'm going to ask you what happened, and then I look at the other player and I said, and you are going to give him an opportunity to finish, and then I will ask you the question, and I look at the 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 first player and go, and you will give him the opportunity to finish, because you get in this situation where they just keep trying to talk over each other, and you just have to stop that. And yep. and, and there's and and there's a place between cooperative and combative where both players are trying to volunteer information, they're just doing so in an, a disorganized way that you have to control. But when you have a combative, uh, it's important to make both players feel that they will be heard. Even if they, even if you make it clear that they're not being heard right now, making it clear that they will be is an important piece to it. Because if you say, hang on, I'm talking to him, but don't follow up with, you're going to have a chance to give your side in just a moment. Mm-hmm. You create a situation where they feel shut out and their reaction to that may be to try and push back in. If you create a situation where you've set temporal limits where they're going with one player is going to speak and then the other player is going to speak, you've created a situation where they know that they're going to get their chance and by not interrupting the other person, they're actually creating a situation and a precedent for them not to be interrupted. I think setting a timeline like that is uh, is important, especially with, like if you're a head judge event and you're taking an appeal. Players tend to already be slightly escalated sometimes in that situation, mm-hmm. and to sit sit down and say, "Okay, guys, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get your side of the story, and then I'm going to get your side of the story, and then I'm going to ask any questions I have, and then I'm going to make a ruling." Uh, that lets it also helps out when players start to get into it with each other. You can say, "Hold on, I said I was going to get your side of the story. Please hang on just a minute." Uh, it it makes it much easier to handle it when the conf- conflict arises if you get that out of the way first. Yep. Uh, Control of the situation is often very closely tied to communication about what you're going to do. So I, I have a I have an uh, an amusing story. I, I think the story is kind of funny. Uh, it was at it was at an event. Well, I was at an event uh, a few months ago. Um, there was a, a judge call uh, with a with a player who is, um, uh, I will say, known to be uh, aggressive or the kind of or he has a very strong personality. And uh, an uh, an L1 took the call, and it was involving uh, blocking order stuff like that and so the l1 goes up takes the call i kind of go up right behind him and uh the players quickly explain what's going on and when he picks up the card to read read the card that's what's going on the card's got a lot of text on it and the players just start arguing and they keep arguing and they're going back and forth and it's starting to escalate and i tap him on the shoulder and i go he gain control of that situation so he, he he stops them and gets the going. And then after the call, I ask him, you know, you know, why, why didn't you when you were reading the card and you saw that the, the stuff was escalating? And he looked at me. And he said, he said, I've got four boys at home that didn't even register as a conflict to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, at a magic event. That's is a little bit different, but it uh, it, it just kind of the, me just, the acceptable level is lower, right? <laughs> but it was just it was just like oh, it didn't even it didn't even. I was like, what must your home like home life be like? <laughs> uh, 
But uh, I mean, sometimes you do have to play referee in those situations and just take control, take the focus to you. And honestly, there have been plenty of times that I've taken flack that was intended for somebody else because that's a better way for it to happen than for the two players who are going to have to keep sitting at the table for the next 25 minutes finishing their match to be directly in conflict for the rest of it. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of that's kind of an important point because the judges you got we can we can take a lot. And I think I think one of the one of the the aspects of it is is you know, we don't you don't have to take anything personally or well I mean not anything but I mean there there's some things where players can cross the lines but for for the most <laughs> part for the most part you know, if you if you are comfortable and you're in control of the situation, you feel like you're if you feel like you're in control of the situation, then you can take a whole lot simply because it's not going to matter in the end. Well, there's some amount of frustration that you just absorb, but right. if it's the other piece of directing it to you is that it's much harder for a player to get in a mindset where they're going to go after a judge than it is for a player to get in a mindset where they're going to go after a player. You know, if they feel like their opponent has, you know, gotten lucky and tried to get away with something, then they feel very justified in getting angry at that person and being aggressive with that person because they feel like they've been directly impacted by that person. But if you step in and you redirect them towards you, at that point, you're a neutral arbiter who's also an official at the tournament, and you're acting in a, a, a position of authority, that changes the interaction. And so it makes it so that that interaction can go much more smoothly than if they were directly interacting with, with an opponent, especially an opponent who they feel tried to get away with something, whether or not you come to that conclusion or not. Okay, so we've gone, gone over the types of uh, interactions you can expect to have, mm -hmm. uh, or the styles of interactions you can expect to have. What um, what different things can we expect to see in an investigation? Because we're broadening the definition here from just, we're trying to see if we should decute this person, to we're talking about all kinds of judge calls. So oh, yeah. what, what types of investigations are we dealing with here? So there are five types of judge calls that um, I try to address through the workshop, and Obviously, there's there's even broader, but just throwing them into to categories, um, and we're gonna I'm gonna kind of try and step up how common these are. Um, so miss triggers, uh, the timing of an action. So when players have a disagreement about when a spell is being cast, or whether somebody declared blockers and then did something, or whether they were doing something during declare blockers, um, life total disputes where people look down at their pads and figure out that they have different numbers on them. Um, and then uh, I, I put a kind of broad category of failure to agree on reality, and that's kind of a reference to a, a very, very, very old <laughs> infraction um, where uh, essentially you have two players who have completely different views of, of what, what just happened. And at some point, something comes up that clues them in that they're not playing the same game anymore and a judge gets involved. Um, I've had situations where, you know, people have been on different turns. Um, people have, you know, you know, something has stayed in play for two completely different reasons, according to the, the players, and both of them were wrong. And so, 
Um, basically, you have a situation where you've got two stories and you have to figure out what actually happened. Uh, and then uh, turn verification uh, or card counting. It, when you get into a situation where someone thinks that someone has an extra card uh, or you have to determine whether or not an extra card was drawn. Um, and so that involves going through all the permanence in play, the cards in hand, the graveyards, the, the exile zone, and counting them up, determining what turn it is, and determining whether or not there's a discrepancy there. And that can get very complex. And, you know, doesn't need to involve, uh, doesn't necessarily involve any sort of cheating, uh, but it is still a very complex investigation that has a bunch of different layers and a bunch of different steps to it. Okay. So do you want to go into more detail? Uh, uh, the first item is uh, for missed triggers. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's a pretty that's a pretty common common one. Judge, does he get his trigger or not? Mm -hmm. That might yeah, be the question of, I get most these days. Yeah, that's and especially with the the way that the IPG handles them now, where you're responsible for doing something by a certain point, um, and that's about as much as as the normal player knows that at some point my opponent can miss his trigger, but what that point is is not necessarily a well known piece of information among the player community. Um, so you've got four different types of triggers. And uh, so the first step is to identify what type of trigger you're dealing with. And then off of that, you have to identify what kind of the trip point is when the player misses the trigger. And so I think it's time for some IPG reading. <laughs> because uh, I, I believe one of, the, one of your mottos is we read the IPG so you don't have to. Uh, I think we've said summarize that. the IPG, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we so, go into uh, excruciatingly detail line by line everything uh, the IPG said. Uh, no. Okay, so some of these trip trip points. Uh, yeah. So let's see. the The first type of trigger is a triggered ability that requires its controller to choose targets other than target opponent modes or other choices when the ability is put on the stack, and that sets the trip point of you gotta announce these before you pass priority. So when you're putting that trigger on the stack, you basically have to say, "Look, trigger target stack." <laughs> and this is my modal trigger, and I'm choosing this mode. Mm -hmm. so, because without that information, the game can't really move forward. Um, next one is triggered ability that causes a change in the visible game state, including life totals, or requires a choice upon resolution. And so those mean that you've got to take the appropriate physical action or make it clear what the action taken or choice made is before taking any game actions, such as casting a sorcery or explicitly moving to the next step or phase, that can be taken only after the triggered ability should have resolved. Note that casting an instant spell or activating an ability doesn't mean that the ability has been forgotten as it could still be on the stack. So essentially, this is probably the most common uh, type of breakpoint that we see. Uh, you've got a situation where the trigger exists and you're looking for something that tells you that you've passed the point where it could have resolved. The last point that it could have resolved. Uh, you know, someone has an upkeep trigger and they draw their card before doing anything. Okay, so the last point that could have resolved is when you move to the draw phase, and and the key draw, the, when the draw step, and the key here is for for this particular one is the visible change. Okay, mm -hmm. like sacrifice a creature, put a plus one plus one counter on something, gain you know gain some life. 
those those are all very very visible things that involve moving cards or tokens or counters or you know picking up a pen and writing things down so yeah, the question to ask here is, do you have to do something? If you have to do something, then it very likely falls into this category. Yeah. Um, I'd also so, add that um, I don't think something people understand sometimes is that uh, things can happen after that trigger went on the stack and it still not be missed. So, um, you know, say you have, I don't know, whenever you cast a spell, this creature gets plus one, plus one counter. And then in it, you know, I cast a spell and then my opponent's like, well, in response... Um, I'm going to kill your other creature. Uh, and then they're like, and then the, uh, the original player is like, okay, well, after that results, I'm going to put the counter on my guy. And he's like, no, it's too late. You, uh, you know, you missed your trigger. I've seen that one come a few times and it's not too late yet. Yep. That's, that's absolutely correct. And essentially the, what this is, what this says is if something could happen in response to the trigger, assume that it does. Uh, and so, we're not going to say that you missed anything until we go to something that can't happen in response to the trigger. If the trigger can still be on the stack, then you haven't missed it yet. Yeah. It's just basically the trigger happened until you have evidence that it didn't. And that's, that kind of holds for all of these other categories. We've talked about that with, you know, choosing targets, you know, not choosing a target. That's evidence <laughs> that it's they pretty didn't clear do that you, you didn't trigger anything. Right. Not not putting, you know, advancing the game past a point and not putting a plus one, plus one counter on your guy. That's evidence that it didn't happen. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, the next one. Next one is a triggered ability that changes the rules of the game. And the controller must prevent an opponent from taking any resulting illegal action. And so nice. essentially... Until someone goes to to do something that would be affected by this, we we don't have to announce this. And but you have to step in. Pirate what was that? Wolf. That's the I think, one. I think I think yeah. that's the one. I it's, remember it's, that now. This is uh this is Pyreheart Wolf is the card that that was a big thing and guys like this it says uh whenever Pyreheart Wolf attacks, each creature you control can't be blocked this turn except by two or more creatures. Okay, yep. so when you attack, okay, there's a trigger, but then your opponent goes to say block with one creature. That's that's that triggers changing the rules of the game. How yep. many creatures you can block with. And then your opponent goes to block with uh one creature, okay? Uh yep. if you accept it, then you miss the block, then you miss your trigger. If you don't accept it and go no no no, two creatures, then you remembered your trigger. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, you right. have to make it clear as soon as it becomes relevant. Right. I'm glad you said that, Wolf Pride, because the moment Jared read this, I was like, "Man, when was like when was the last time I had this this come up?" And I couldn't think of anything. But you're right, Pyreheart Wolf. Like everyone was always talking about Pyreheart Wolf back then. Well, yeah, it was that so because also- because you could uh, attack into an empty board, and then people could uh, play Restoration Angel and go, "Oh, you missed your trigger because you didn't say anything." Yeah, and that's what this is why we we. No, you haven't missed your trigger yet. The the other one, the other example would be like the extra turn from Emrakul. Yeah, that's a good um, one. So where they start to take their where where you play that, and then they start to take their turn. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> my turn. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then uh, a trigger that affects the game state in non-visible ways, and this is another one that comes up a lot. Uh, the controller must take quick. physical action or make it clear what the action is the first time the change has an effect on the visible game state. So if you are attacking and you have exalted, 
and you don't say anything, that's fine until you deal damage. And this is also where uh, a lot of a lot of players get into trouble because they they want to assume that their opponent missed their exalted trigger, and they need that information to block. <laughs> And they have to figure out how can I ask the question as to how big that creature is without telling you that you need to acknowledge your exalted trigger. The answer is you really can't. You just got to suck it up and, and deal with the fact <laughs> that they, you're, you're either going to tell them there's an exalted trigger or you're going to block without information. Uh, you can, what I always suggest is say, all right, go to blocks. How big is this guy? And that's tangentially related to the exalted trigger, but uh, it's not right. directly. And so once they confirm there, you're past the point where uh, the trigger had to have resolved. And they're talking about derived information. So if they give you an answer, they have to tell the truth and you've locked them in. Yeah, I actually had a situation where two players were, um, I guess we'll, I guess we'll call them combative um, <laughs> with each other. And, uh, and, after I, after I made my ruling that, that the player got his trigger, the the opponent was like, you know, he put this card out there, he stared at me for a second, like, what more can I do to, to make sure he, uh, you know, what more can I do to make, to see if that trigger resolved? And in my head, he I didn't say it. stared at me, Judge. What yeah. do I want to do? I didn't say <laughs> what, it, but I was like, you could I ask. What do other You could than just ask. He yeah. held my gaze yeah. for a full three seconds. <laughs> Therefore, he must have missed the trigger. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, just, just ask. <laughs> but I think we already said the important point there. Uh, the the usual takeaway for whenever we're talking about triggers is we assume they they resolved until such point that we can't assume yep. that. Yeah. Until, until, until you yeah. until you give me evidence that it did not resolve, and so that's what we're looking <laughs> for. When you when you go into a situation with a missed trigger, you're trying to figure out what type of trigger is it. Where does that set the trip point, the break point? And now let's figure out whether or not we're past that point. And once you do all of those things, you're at a point where you know whether or not the trigger was technically missed. Uh, and then the other thing that I always throw in here is once you have that answer, it's time to consider whether out-of-order sequencing is a thing. Because if there's a group of things happening and it's technically out of order, but there's no reason that all of them couldn't have happened in order, uh, and there's no information gained out of order that is is relevant to whether or not the trigger would re resolve or you would want the trigger, then out of order sequencing could apply uh, depending on the amount of time that's passed. So I think that covers triggers. Uh, do you agree? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what about what about you mentioned uh, timing of an action? So when you say that, we've already kind of talked about out of order sequencing. So you're not talking about out of order sequencing. You're talking about something else. Yeah. The most common one of these is that I think that he cast this after combat, or I think that he tapped my guy in my main phase. Um, and some of them are fairly ridiculous, um, and some of them are, are really clear once you apply the official shortcuts, um, but there are also ones about, you know, is he done blocking? You know, well, okay, so let's, we got to dig into that and figure out, you know, what's, what's your pattern of blocking? You know, is there anything that you did that would indicate that we're done blocking? Why do you think that he's done blocking? Stuff along those, those lines. But step one is always to identify what the discrepancy is and, and try and be as specific as possible about it. 
Um, if it is that one player thinks that they're in second main and one player thinks that they're in first main, that's a pretty big discrepancy that hopefully there's a good reason for. If one person thinks that they are in the act of declaring blockers and one person thinks that blockers are declared and it's time for him to uh, play a pump spell. And so he's just thrown out a pump spell and you have a situation where one person thinks they're not done with blockers and one person thinks that they were done with blockers, so I pump him to kill him. And if I know that there's that pump spell, then I want to change my blockers. That's a that's a pretty big ruling that you want to dig into why both players feel that they are where they are. Um, so you want to identify uh, any clear markers and whether or not they've been passed. So if you're talking about blockers, you know, has someone said, those are my blocks, or, you know, set things out and, you know, left them there and kind of sat back, you know, and once you have that information, you know, has anybody used an official shortcut? There's a lot of times where these are cleared up by, well, you said combat, so he's acting in the beginning of combat, he's not in your main phase unless he specific unless he specifically said so. Um, and then uh, once you have all of that kind of hammered out, uh, it's also good to think about the fact that generally the person who thinks that they're further ahead needs to have a justification for that view. <clears throat> um, if you think that it is the next turn, why do you think it's the next turn? Um, in general, one player can't drag the other player forward, but one player can keep the other player back. If I want to act in your main before you move to combat, I can do that. Uh, if you want to act in combat before I say you can go to combat, you can't do that. I think one of the places this comes up, uh, it's standard at the moment, is with uh, Goblin Rabble Blaster and yes. trying to kill it. Yes. Uh, yep. can, can we, you know, w w is the trigger on the stack? Is the trigger not on the stack? Where are we at in the turn? Well, the other the other time it comes up a lot is raid. If you turn your guy sideways and push it forward, and I kill it, when was it killed? Right. And so, you know, I I then play a wingbait rock and put my my guy into play. You know, you you have to go through the steps and figure out. You know, did he specify what? You know, what were the actions around that to to figure out what um, whether or not the creature attacked and then was killed or was killed before it attacked. Right there's even there's even like with uh i've seen with rabble master and desecration demon uh when there's no other creatures on the board and they cast that did they are they in the first main or the second yep. main where where are they at <laughs> mm -hmm. you know are you know uh, there's a lot of this game that is played without communication and with assumptions that are uh, accepted generally, uh, but we get involved when those assumptions are not accepted. And so that's where a lot of this comes in, where one player is simply acting the way that they, th on w the information that they think is true, and the other player is acting on what they think is true, and they just don't agree on what's true. <laughs> that's that's an unfortunately common thing, and, and a, lot, a lot of judge calls come specifically from that. Um, another example of them is, uh, is what you mentioned earlier, life total disputes. Mm -hmm. um, we can get we can get really wrapped up in that sometimes with if players think that they're at different life totals than their opponent thinks they're at. Yeah. Um, and what, you get a lot ahead. of attacks for lethal that uh, that aren't right <laughs> and stuff that would be very simple to clear up simply by saying, all right, I've got you at 11. And the other person says, 
hang on, I'm at 14, and you call a judge and you figure it out before you make an attack that gets you dead next turn. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely why the MTR says you're you're supposed to always announce your life total changes. Both players are. Yep. But so what happens with the life total situation if uh, I bring this up because I've been asked this a number of times? Okay. If you can't figure out what the life total is supposed to be or where the difference came from? Well, there's there's a couple of pieces. First off, um, in my opinion you figure out to the best of your ability. Now, not not being able to figure out anything at all is, in my opinion, a failure of the judge. Being able to figure out some of it, but not all of it, you then take that as far as you can go. You figure it out as best you can, and you go off of that. Um, there shouldn't be a situation where you just can't figure anything out. Um, I, I just don't accept that that's a reasonable outcome. I would agree with that statement. I think that you can get you can get a lot of information trying to work backwards through it and figure out what's going on. Yeah, uh, I can especially. I can. Sorry, I can certainly see situations where you don't feel like you have the right answer, but you have an answer that's the best one you can come to. I had I had this one awful awful situation where I had both players were recording uh, uh, non-active non-active players' life totals, and they both had uh, you know twenty eighteen. It was against a red deck, so it was twenty eighteen sixteen fourteen all the way down. They both they both it was just it was just two 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 all the way down. But it got to the point at the very end, like one person had four and one person had six. And it was just re- reconstructing that was uh, uh, involved, like going through the graveyards and going, OK, well, this was this was this. And it, it all boiled down to whether or not a 2-2 had attacked one turn or not. Wow. As, like four turns, four turns ago, did this 2-2 attack? That was that was where we were able to figure out what the discrepancy was. Uh, and we weren't able to get a very good uh, uh, indication either way. Those kind of things get really fun when they involve like Red Sun Zenith, which shuffled back into the library. You don't even have the evidence. Yeah, it, it can get crazy. But but you can always find something you can't like. So, I don't think so, it's ever going to be a position where you go, well, I just don't know. And you throw your hands up. You can always find some point at which they disagree. So what are some strategies? So you've got you've got two players that yep. that disagree. Okay, let's let's say, you know, ideal situation. Both of them have life pads and both of them have been tracking both players. Well, I mean, I don't know that you can assume an ideal situation. Well, let's, uh, let's what what you want to do is at any physical records of life you want to use. And so if that means that you get one player's life pad or you get both players life pads, um, I actually ask the players if I can take them because I want to get control of them physically. In, in these situations, and we've got a couple of these scenarios in the workshop, uh, one of the things that often happens is as you talk things through and start to figure things out, players will start to correct their life total sheets and basically destroy the evidence that you have of what they actually recorded. Um, and so you want to get the sheets physically so that you can have control of them. And um, so they're they're not doing this on purpose, right? They're just doing it. No, as, they're yeah. not trying. They're they're trying to be helpful, but they're changing the information that's on the sheet because oh, we figured out that I should have taken four instead of taking. Oh yeah, right, right. Oh yeah, you cracked a fetch there. Yeah, yeah, that's okay, right. So... And scratch something out and write something else next to it, and that's that's bad. <laughs> this is this is evidence that needs to go into a the nice little evidence bag with you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you work backwards from there. And, and, and go back to the Jeffersonian for uh, <laughs> yeah. Hodgkin's to, to, to do some particulate analysis. All right. <laughs> okay. um, the other big thing that I that I advocate is working backwards. Uh, and this comes from actually a pretty straightforward reason, which is it's most likely the problem happened recently because, A, they started off in line because they both started at 20. They they know that information. And then from there, they went forward and probably, at, if not multiple points along the way, they, they confirmed. Um, the chances are that the error happened close to when it occurred, uh, when it was noticed. And so when you sit down and say oh, wait a second, we don't match up. It's likely that it happened recently. Um, and so you want to start backwards because of that. But you also want to start backwards because if I ask you what happened this turn, and then I ask you what happened last turn, and then we step back and we step back and we step back, first of all, you're able to recall what happened this turn fairly easily and what happened last turn fairly easily. And we're also building a narrative and a mental bridge back and back and back to kind of walk it back step by step. Uh, you're building the player's confidence that they can answer your questions because they're answering easy questions first. Uh, and that doesn't happen if you jump back to the start of the game and you say, all right, let's walk through from the beginning. Because you're asking them to go back to the hardest thing to recall, the furthest away point, and then to build that narrative over again. And so as soon as you hit an I don't remember, that's contagious. It's it's very hard to work past that unless you change the paradigm again. Um, and so if you get a player to a point where they feel like they're not able to help you, then they're likely to not be able to help you for the rest of the investigation. Just because they're already in a mindset of, of I don't know. Yeah. And not, it, and not because they're trying to be unhelpful, but... Yeah. And they're... Someone who's helpful to you, who wants to help you, the more that you give them questions that they can answer, the more that they build on that confidence of, of remembering, and the more that you build kind of the pathway to the next piece of information, the better outcome you're going to get. Uh, I guess. And go ahead. Sorry. Once once you once you go down and you're just like, OK, maybe they can remember what happened on turn one. Maybe they can remember what happened on turn two because not much was going on. But turn three, they're like, ah, did he cast this creature? Did he not? I don't remember. And then that uncertainty about turn three, where you're talking about contagious, suddenly, well, they can't really remember what happened on turn four because turn four depended on what happened on turn three. And since they yeah, can't remember. And, and I've seen back, people successfully go back to the beginning of the game and work all the way through. It's just I don't think that that's the, the strategy that's the most likely to lead to success. It's not that it can't be done. It's just that it puts everybody into a tougher position to get there. So, so they, they, you, you mentioned, or, or CJ mentioned that the M, that the MTR right now specifically says that players are supposed to confirm life total changes, and that is, you know, not every player does that. Uh, we've got, we've got, you know, players that listen to this podcast. Please, please, please confirm life totals. You know, when you take two, say I'm at eighteen or I'm at ten or whatever you're at, because. These these problems right here are very hard to work through, and just a simple "I'm at 18" and what happens? The other guy checks in and he's like, "Yep, you're at 18," and the game continues on, and you will detect these life total problems much much faster. It should also be mentioned that the MTR says both players should bring a means of of uh, monitoring your life totals. So ah, uh, the MTR. 
I know. Yeah. It's, it lives we, in a we perfect love it. world. And in an ideal world. <laughs> yeah. My method for recording my life total is my opponent. Yes, and I've seen that a lot. Yeah, that's not good. Don't that's, your opponent's not that's necessarily. Not <laughs> that's not a very good method. Your opponent is not a, uh, a, a a reliable source of recording your life total. And and truthfully, uh, along the same lines, like if we get to a table and one person's been maintaining all the life totals and the other person hasn't, and they have a dispute, well, you know, we'll try. We can still try to look into it, but one person has a paper record and the other one doesn't, so. One looks more reliable than the other. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, and it doesn't mean that the person who's on paper is correct, right. but it does mean that that's the person who's presenting you with all of the evidence. The other person can only present you with anecdotal evidence to refute that, and they may be able to, but the the person who has a a record of how the life totals changed and and by how much is presenting a much stronger case for the life totals on their sheet versus the, the life totals on the dice across the table. The the best that I've ever seen uh, sitting in on a match, I saw a person that recorded, you know, 20, 20 to 19, and they wrote fetch next to it. And then later on, they took, they wrote, mm-hmm. you know, 17 to 8 or 17 to 15, and they wrote, you know, goblin. You know, and they yeah. they were basically not only this is how much damage I took, this is why I took it, mm-hmm. and that right there is a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Once in a lifetime. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's I, like I it's, try it's like to do that when I play. Uh, I I don't know that I I live up to that all the time. <laughs> it's rarer than the typed deck list is what it is. So, but so it's, what do we? No- so what do we have? Um, when we have life total discrepancies, we do have the advantage that usually, not always, but usually at least one of the two players has something written down that we can mm-hmm. start from. Um, what about things that aren't life total dis- disputes um, that we can, the, the, things that players disagree on where they don't, we don't have that information? Yeah, well, this gets into kind of the failure to agree on reality territory. Um, and the first step is actually to go directly against that and say, what do we agree on? You know, as much as possible, you want to narrow down what you're investigating in all of these scenarios. Uh, the reason to work backwards on life total is you want to, to look into the fewest amount of, of incidents. And so you, if you're, if the best guess is that it's a recent thing, you start from the end and you work backwards. Uh, in this situation, you want to nail down as much information that both players agree on as possible so that you can narrow down what you're actually having to make a ruling on. Um, and the other piece is once you do that, it, one of the most important things that I've found is being able to look at it and see whether or not the two stories that are presented are actually mutually exclusive and you're presented with a situation where someone is lying or if they can actually be kind of the, the Obi-Wan from a different point of view story where I see it through my lens and you see it through your lens. And by getting both of those stories and working them together, I, you can figure out, okay, here's what happened, and here's how this person saw it this way, and here's how this person saw it the other way. Okay, do you, do you, have, a, do you have an example or for, for this that might help like, like uh, uh, crystallize it for, for some of the listeners? Uh, so a lot of these happen around combat. Um, and, you know, they can also kind of overlap with the timing of an action. Um, 
a lot of times they become uh, questions of degrees. You know, when one person says he put his creatures down and then he leaned back and crossed his arms, and the other person said, you know, I I pushed my creatures out front, uh, but you know, and yeah, I leaned back a bit, but I kept my hands out. Those are, you know, if you take them at their word, those are mutually exclusive. But realistically, you may have a situation where people are viewing the same actions in a different manner. You're not looking at yourself when you are playing. Like, it's impossible unless you don't have a mirror across from you. So your exact actions are actually fairly hard to convey. Um, and so it's what you feel. And especially since your mind probably isn't on what your hands are doing, your mind is on the cards and what you are trying to do in terms of blocking, not blocking anything along those lines. Um, your exact hand position is something that you may not be completely aware of. And so your opponent's statement on that may not match up with your belief on it, uh, but it may match reality more. And you may have a situation where both players are telling you their truth, but the the truth is somewhere in between. And I think, and Brian has talked about this before too, um, is that just because two players have told you two different things doesn't mean one of them is lying to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was you, about to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I stole it from you so oh. that I could participate. Okay. Well, there's, <laughs> there's two pieces of this. One of them is, you know, you want to figure out whether they are mutually exclusive. And, you know, what you're telling me is X and what you're telling me is Y. And those two things are not a matter of perspective. They're not a matter of, you know, misinterpreting pieces. Those are simply different things that you're telling me. And that's where you start going down a path of someone is lying to me and I need to try and dig into it. Um, but most of these are, are cases of what I call advantageous recall, which is in your head, especially as you're trying to remember a situation in order to present it to someone and everyone has an outcome in mind. Everyone wants a certain outcome. By the time you get to a judge call, it's because the two players want different things. And so as you recall it, especially over and over, your brain is going to highlight the points that benefit your case. I want you to decide that, um, that he has declared his blocks and now I get to kill him with a pump spell. And so I'm going to, my brain is going to highlight and exaggerate how much he leaned back. And so I'm not lying to you that he leaned back a lot, but I'm telling you that he leaned back more than he did because my brain is telling me that's an important thing here, push it. And the other player wants you to leave it in blockers and make sure that, you know, he, so his brain is telling him that he didn't move at all. And so they're both, their stories are drawing further and further apart, but not because they're lying about them, just because of when they think back on this situation through the lens of, I, I want to hit on the pieces of the story that support the outcome that I want. They're going to present you with just a, a different version of the same story. So I think I have an example that falls under this. Um, and if it doesn't, it's a nice segue into our next, into the final <laughs> one you said. So I'll, I'll be safe here. Um, it was my very first event and I was uh, just like a brand new level one. <clears throat> and I got called over to a table and the two players are say they, um, they disagreed on whether or not they were in game three or game two. 
And I was like, I have no idea what to do. I went straight to Casey Hogan. He was the head judge at the time. And uh, and then Casey went over there. And um, afterward, I talked to him. And his solution was like, it was so genius to me. And I, you know, I was just too new to realize it. But all he did was he said, who won the die roll at the start of the match? Because once you know that, you can figure out who went first in the first game. And then you can determine who went se- who went first in the second game, if there was a second game. Um People tend to remember that, who who went first in each game. And that was enough for them to remember that they were, in fact, in game three. Cool. Yeah, that's a good one. And and you're looking for a specific piece of information that allows you to then build out and, and develop that narrative. Yeah. And and the, the nice thing about that is because that's such a specific piece of information, even though you're going further back, you're looking for something very specific that kind of sticks in your head. You know, oh, yeah, I've lost the die roll every time today. You know, people have that type of thing that, that, that just kind of stick. Um, the further back in time you're going, the more specific your questions have to be in order to get good information. All right. So so the final the final thing you mentioned was turn verification and card counting. Which yeah. Is, uh, it's always an interesting one to me. Uh, CJ Crooks tried to teach me this before <laughs> GP Salt Lake City, and I was like, I don't know. So I, I think more. that's because I went through some of this with him uh, during his L3 exam. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's there, this is something that can get really overwhelming. And so one of the things that, that I recommend here is that you step through it and you try and break it down as much as possible. Um, so the first thing is something that you just talked about, who went first, because that determines who's drawn a card every turn and who missed their first draw. And so that's a very important piece of information. Uh, once you have that information, which most people will be able to tell you, um, we're asking for a specific piece of information, even if it's a long time ago. Uh, the next thing is mulligans, and that's actually overlooked a lot. Because most people are like, all right, we got seven cards, and now we we figure out how many turns it's been. Then we start looking at stuff. But if you actually had five cards to start, that's going to change the count. Um, Again, mulligans are another specific question about the beginning of the game that a lot of people even note them because they want to be able to, you know, point back and be like, man, I've taken nine mulligans this tournament. Uh and then the, and to be clear to uh, the listeners, what we're talking about right now is if you're in a situation where, uh, for example, people ask you, they don't know what turn it is, or mm-hmm. this is also applies to if if the opponent um, is like, I think he drew an extra card. We're talking about uh, or, methods you can use. Jeff's or even know. did I play a land? It's post-combat, and they're just like, did I lay a land this turn? Yeah. Uh, these are methods you can use to kind of count the cards on the table um, and figure out, well, where are we right now? Yep. Yeah. I, I've also seen, like, I don't know if I've drawn a card for the turn yet. Yep. Yeah. All right. Definitely seen that one, too. Um, so once the reason that I want to ask those questions first before I do anything else is because I want to engage the players and get them into the process. Both of those are specific questions. You need that information uh, in order to um, in order to really dig into this. And uh, it's basic information that you build upon. Um, The next thing that I I do is I want to get a full count of how many cards I have on each side. And that's hand, permanent, graveyard, and exile. And I want to record that. And so basically, you know, I'm going to want my pad out and I'm going to want to say, okay, there's 23 cards uh, on this side and there's 20 cards on the other side. Um, And so... 
you now have okay how many um, how many cards they had in their opening hand and a total count of how many cards you're going to have to account for. Um, the next thing that I like to do is to review the cards in the graveyard for additional cards. Uh, so essentially, are there any cards in the graveyard that search for land? Are there any cards in the graveyard that draw cards? You know, do you have a Council of the Soratami or a Rampant Growth? Um, do you have any cards that manifest a card? And so, you know, what cards could account for additional cards being available to a player? Um, then I go and I review the cards that are in play for similar cards. You know, do you have any cards that are manifested? Do you have uh, any cards, you know, do you have a borderland ranger that searches out a land and puts it in your hand? Because that's going to give you plus one card. Uh, do you have a moldrifter in play? Um, you know, do you have anything in play that accounts for additional cards? Um, if you have uh, something that searches a card, has an activated ability that searches a card out uh, and puts it into play or something along those lines, uh, that can be something where you need to ask a question, hey, you know, was, has this been activated how many times? Um, anytime that you are, are looking at a card and trying to figure out whether or not it accounts for an additional card, I like to do that in front of the players, I like to do it out loud because as you're walking through things, they're going to catch you with information that you don't have. So if you have a situation where cards got into a graveyard in a different way, let's say that somebody thought sees uh, a council of the Soratami, you're looking at the council in the graveyard, and if you don't say anything, you may count that as plus two because if it was played, you drew two extra cards. But if it was discarded from your hand instead of instead of drawn, instead of played, it's not plus two. It actually doesn't account for anything. And so if you walk through the cards in the graveyard and you say, okay, so I see a council, you know, did you play that card? Okay, no, it was discarded. All right, you go to the next one and the next one. Um, and then you also want to review exile. That's another place that can easily be forgotten. Um, and then uh, an important question is, have any cards been returned to either player's hand? Because you don't yeah. want to walk through their hand and start trying to account for cards from there unless those cards have already been in play and already been activated, already been active in the game. You don't want to give away information about the hand because if you get to a situation where you say, you know what, everything's okay, here's, your, here's the information that you need, yes, you have played a land this turn, you guys can continue from here, you'll have given away information that is relevant to the game if you're looking through and you're asking, oh, well, did you dredge this card? You want to ask a more generic question of, have any cards been returned to to hand during the game? And that can lead to, you know, oh, yeah, I dredged this card, or oh, oh yeah, I played reclaim on a card from my graveyard um and so and put it on top of the library those so are the types of things that's that's something that's actually kind of kind of subtle because i've seen it in other places where in the, the judges when they're in the course of doing an investigation or performing the fix or something like that they might give away uh, uh, uh some hidden information like the mm -hmm. the the classic is during a deck deckless problem, you write on the back where it's like failed to register. You know his battlewise yeah. hoplite. Red elemental. Yeah, <laughs> just like ah. So yeah, so definitely, definitely be sure to keep hidden information hidden. Yep. 
by asking it, about what cards have have basically interacted with the game, uh, then you can basically any card that hasn't that's gone to the hand and just stayed in the hand and hasn't done anything. The only reason that you need to know about it is that it is a card in hand because it counts as a card that they have access to. But if it hasn't been played and it hasn't interacted with the game at all, then the identity of that card is, it might as well be blank to you. One thing that, uh, that you also want to ask in older formats uh, is about cards that may have gone back to the library. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Zeniths, which can happen. Yep. I think, you know, Green, Green Sun Zenith is now banned in Modern, so it's not as big of a deal <laughs> now. But um, you know that can, that can be a thing as well if something's been putting things back in the library in any way uh it's yeah good or to something shuffled in or what have you right well if they if they shuffle too many cards in it gets even more awkward but yeah. um well, hopefully I, you can try I, I also brought up reclaim which takes a card from the graveyard and puts it on uh top of the library which right. actually would give you a, a minus one because a card that you had access to basically jumped back into the, the library and so that 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 adjusts your count um, and so that's that's definitely a relevant thing to to look into as well. Um, so once you have kind of walked through everything, uh, you want to do a full accounting. And the pieces of it are the cards in the opening hand, the cards that have been drawn from draw phases, which is basically either the number of turns or the number of turns minus one, and then additional cards from you know spells or creatures or anything along those lines. And what usually happens here is you're actually looking for uh, for one of these pieces. And to identify the number of turns, what you're going to do is you're going to take cards in opening hand and additional cards from spells and creatures and do that math. And then you're, that's going to give you the number that were drawn through regular draw phases uh, and then draw, sorry, draw steps. And that allows you to set what the turn is. Um, when you have a situation where you're trying to figure out what turn it is, look at the two sides of the board, figure out which one is easier and use that one. Like, there's no reason to, to go hard mode on these things if all you're trying to do is nail down the turn. Uh, and if you find yourself basically with a simpler side of the board and, and a harder side of the board, one of the things you can do is go through the simple side of the board to nail down the turn. And then that can give you information that you can use for the harder side of the board, because that will give you a, a number for how many cards have been drawn, you know, just for turns. This, yeah, this is this is something that I've seen a a lot of judges. I don't want to say like freeze up on, but it's kind of one of the things where it's just like this the the concept of card counting and figuring out you know like what cards count as you know plus one and and that they they tend to they tend to make it as hard as possible on themselves so yeah oh, looking yeah. for short looking for shortcuts to make your job easier take it all day every day yeah. <laughs> well the other thing is and i mentioned this a little bit earlier but i i want to be i definitely want to mention this again is as much as possible do this publicly you're doing this in do this in front of both players so that they can help you they can give you information. They played through the game. They know whether or not cards were played, whether or not cards, you know, actually went into the graveyard in some other way. And the other piece is these are complex rulings and they're hard to understand. And so the more information that you play out in front of the players, the more likely it is that they're going to understand what you're doing and understand um, what your ruling is and why your ruling is what it is. 
and that's going to be how that's how you avoid an appeal. Appeals don't come from disagreement as much as people think. Every once in a while, you've got an actual disagreement with the judge. I'd say that maybe 20 to 25% of appeals come from actual disagreement about what should happen. And then another 20 to 25% come from, well, I'm just going to check because if I don't, then I lose. And I, you know, I want the judge to be the, wrong. Yeah. Like, I'm hoping that you're wrong, but I don't have any real reason to believe that you're wrong. I'm just hoping that either because this is, I feel that this is a, this is a judgment call or I just need to, I, I need you to be wrong or else I'm dead. Um, but I would say that, you know, 50 to 60% of appeals come from a judge not selling the ruling. I, you didn't convince me that you're right. I don't specifically think that you're wrong, but you didn't convince me that you're right. And these turn verification and card counting scenarios are exceptionally easy to fall into that trap because they're easy to tank on. They're easy to go into your own head and try and work through things. And if you can avoid that and you can stay in, put the information in front of the players, at the end of the day, counting is not a hard thing. What you're trying to do is you're trying to lay out what you're counting and why you're counting it. And if you can do that, then the players are going to understand. Yeah. So, uh, I think at the end of it, this is, this is kind of, we've, we've gone through the, the, the types of interactions. Now, are there, are there any, uh, are there any other types of, uh, uh, types of rulings or types of, types of interactions that, that you, you've discovered that maybe aren't, uh, one of like the big five or the big three? Well, one, <clears throat> there are a couple of, a uh, couple of things that come up kind of more down the cheating vein uh, that are much less commonplace, uh, stuff like adding cards to a sealed pool, uh, or and, and this comes up very rarely, a, a draft procedure violation, you know, basically peaking during a draft or something along those lines. And peaking is probably the hardest one to, to investigate because there's really not a whole lot to dig into, you're going to talk to the person, but you're you're going mostly off of you either have somebody who has a, a solid report that someone was looking, or you don't. And if you ask the person about it and they say, "Oh yeah, I did," then you have an easy investigation. And if you ask them about it and they say, "No, no, I didn't," and you have a judge who said, "Look, you know, the first two picks, he made a quick pick and then looked to his." <laughs> look to his left to see what was being taken downstream or look to his right to see what was being taken upstream. And you trust the judge and the player. That's just a who do I trust more situation sometimes. But uh, with adding cards to a sealed pool, you still want to construct a narrative. If you want to be able to say, I think this is what happened, as opposed to just, I think you added cards I think that you put these cards into your sealed pool. I think that you, you know, uh, and another thing that's along those lines is I think that you are intentionally playing uh, a different configuration of your deck for the start of the round. Yeah, so sometimes it's easy, like they have three Soul Tide charms in their pre-release pool. Yeah, no. I mean, sometimes the uh, the cheaters make it very, very simple to, to do your... Uh, <laughs> To do your investigation, like when the player played a uh, speed versus cunning uh, 
Frontier Bivouac, I think, in his uh, in his sealed pool at Grand Prix Orlando. Wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> I had the, the wackiest uh, a Boros charm in a Theros pre-release was, yeah, was I, one. So, sometimes it's easy mode. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, I think we have to start wrapping this up, I hate to say. We've gone through okay. we've gone through a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I will say that if you want to go back and listen to uh, our previous episode on investigation, I think that you'll also still learn things from that. Yeah, they're, they're basically uh, different a, topics. Yeah, Eric had a great uh, a great run of, of things to talk about that were more related to the uh, the investigating DQ scenarios situation. And um, so I think that they, these kind of go hand in hand. It'll be in the show notes. It's a, it's a piece of uh, JudgeCast history, too. You get to see us kind of <laughs> fumble through, I bet. I don't know. I haven't listened to it in a while, but I bet it's not pretty. That, now I'm going to go have to go back and listen to <laughs> I it. I know. Uh, All right, awesome. So we have a quick bit of news to touch on. Um, luckily, it won't take long, but we got a new infraction procedure guide recently. Uh, we also got updates to the rules and the MTR and all that stuff. But luckily, almost nothing has changed. Uh, so luckily, I'm not about to tell you that all that stuff Jared said about triggers has changed. No, we are still thankfully pretty happy with the trigger policy as is. It took some time to get here, but uh, yeah, but we're, we're in a good place. Seem to be here to stay. <laughs> so the only real new thing about the IPG, um, and I know Brian is rolling in his grave but the only <laughs> new thing about the ipg to discuss the only really important thing is that what we call the new play draw rule which is the play draw rule used at ptqs and up um, for determining who gets to play first in the top eight uh, mostly it means the player with the highest seed gets to play first or gets to choose whether to play first or draw first in the top eight so first place will always get to choose to play or draw first and so on and so forth um, that rule is now in effect. That is now the default rule. We don't have to call that the new rule anymore. We don't have to announce that we're using it. Uh, it is now just the default rule for, um, according to Toby Elliott, every event that has a top eight. So this includes regular REL events, just every event. If you have a top eight, and I would wager a top four, that is just now the rule. The highest seed player. Yeah, if you go to a single elimination playoff. Yeah, the, the highest seed player gets to choose whether or not to play or draw. And of course... For subsequent games in that match, they don't get to choose the loser. I'm, I'm so glad. I, I expect. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I was just gonna say I'm so glad this happened because I, I never get asked anymore. Everyone just assumes that this is the yeah. way it is, and yet you still have to announce it. Uh, oh, you always had that one guy who's like, "Well, you didn't announce it, and I'm the eighth seed, so we should get to roll." You're like, no, I sorry. Think, no. I think this is going to get messed up a lot at, at local stores where they do top eights for their F&Ms. Uh, yeah, it, so, does apply to, it does apply to F&Ms. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> top eights for your F&Ms is a mistake anyways. So I agree, them, but a lot of stores hang. don't. Oh, let hang. <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get so much hate mail over that where it's just like oh our, we love we love top eights for our fms our players like to sit around for an extra three hours we also you know what's funny is i i talk to so many uh store owners that say that their players love it when the truth is that they have like two players that love it yeah but they're vocal and, and that are vocal and you if you actually ask around the players the other players are like yeah i'd actually really only rather play like four rounds yeah and be done well, and 
Or they play, they play, they get to the top four, and then they then just they split. split. They always yeah. chop every yeah. time. And then if you're the guy Dear. that doesn't want to split, everybody gets mad at you. <laughs> Dear store owners, there is no way that the amount that your players love this is worth the three hours that it keeps your store open, even if all you're taking account is the power and light. <laughs> so that's actually <laughs> so funny no story about way. that. I don't like I don't like top eights for FNM, but but my local game store runs them and uh, they have an event that is unrelated to magic that goes to like 3 a.m. on Friday. Wow. So they don't care. <laughs> so why not? <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone out there wants to contact us, they can at judgecast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. Uh, as you may surmise, we're going to be skipping emails on this episode like most episodes these days right now because of time issues. So, Jared, thank you very much for being on. I think I think this is... Yeah, my pleasure. This is, this is a... If we had best ofs, I would say this one preemptively is going to go into that. <laughs> um, did you have anything you wanted to talk about or contact info or anything you'd like to plug? Any of that? Uh, let's see, yours? yeah. I mean, so... Uh, as always, I'm in charge of supplemental activities, which is uh, a, a cool thing that you know we work with the judges who uh, test for level three and and don't make it to uh, work with them and help them to to make that next step. So uh, sometimes I reach out to people to help me with that. So that's that's a plug. Yeah, that's that's actually a bit of news we skipped because you you did recently make a, a minor change to supplementals. Do you want to talk about that just real briefly? Uh, yeah, we changed how it was uh, how it works because we were finding that uh, some of the judges who were a little further away uh, were basically just presented with a whole bunch of activities to do and would wind up stalling out, um, and that was both taking kind of the judge out of it because instead of kind of moving back into the the regular candidate pool and working on just getting better as a judge, they were trying to do, you know, five, six, seven different activities. And that just, it, it wasn't being effective. Um, the other thing is you had five, six, seven activities that were being supervised by level three plus judges and putting a lot of time into that. And so we narrowed supplemental activities to only uh, take judges who were uh, would be presented with uh, four or less activities, and then uh, judges who would be presented with five or more if they went to supplemental activities um, basically bounce back into the the regular candidate pool, but um, have a six month window where uh, they can't submit. Uh, a checklist. And the other big thing that kind of comes along with that is that we're now going to be assigning a, a mentor to anyone who doesn't pass their level three panel um, to uh, kind of help them along to, to guide them through supplemental activities if they're assigned supplemental activities or just to provide uh, a sounding board and some, some direction uh, for how to improve uh, if they're not assigned supplemental activities. And I'm I'm optimistic that this is going to both help those judges who are assigned supplemental activities to have somebody who's really more directly involved in their uh, in overseeing all of that, um, and also help the judges who are not put put the judges who are ne no longer going to be assigned supplemental activities in a better position to kind of take that step back, 
look at what they need to work on and, and work on it in a less structured sense, because I think it was the structure that was getting in the way there. Okay. So what else would you like to plug? Uh, very excited that, uh, we just had an announcement this past weekend, or I don't know if it'll be this past weekend by the time this gets out, uh, that Star City Games, uh, has been asked to run Grand Prix London. And so, we're uh, we're going international, and we just posted um, our uh, our applications for Grand Prix Charlotte, Grand Prix London, and Grand Prix Atlanta. Uh, and along with that, the 2015 uh, Keystone program, which is our program to provide travel assistance for level threes to commit to at least two of those three events. And so uh, we are really excited because we think that having Grand Prix London in that group of events for the Keystone program is going to open it up to a lot of European judges who can do one U.S. Grand Prix, and then they're going to be able to do Grand Prix London uh, and pair that up and become eligible for Keystone when uh, they they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do that for Charlotte and Atlanta. So, so I have I have a, I have a question in the, in that you you were saying like we we did this and we did this and it's also are you associated with Star City Games? <laughs> Uh, yes, I am the oh, okay. organized play uh, <laughs> manager for Star City Games. Oh. Probably should have mentioned that at some point, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. when did that happen? I'm going to be honest, now? this whole episode, we kind of just assumed people knew who you were. <laughs> <laughs> um. Jared Silva, level four, Roanoke, organized play manager for Star City Games. <laughs> I think I just cut that and put that at the front of the episode. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So... Uh, I think that kind of covers the stuff that I'm I'm doing right now. I'm excited to get to the pro tour uh, in you know about a week, week and a half, and uh, I get to be the judge manager there. So that's a new role for me. I'm I'm excited about that. That's cool. Jess and Brian, are you guys going to apply for GP Atlanta? Is there a chance we have the all three in one place card again? Uh, that's in November, I believe. Right? Yeah. Yes, I will be uh, applying. Are you? Are either of you going to be in Memphis? No. Okay. <laughs> I will. Charlotte oh, you is. Will. Yeah, you're head judge, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm head judging Memphis. And uh I'll be uh I'll be supporting Chris Richter in um in Cleveland and I'll be the TO cuz Star City Games is running Grand Prix Miami on March uh 6th, 7th and 8th. Oh yeah. I'm actually going to so in Memphis I'm going to do a thing um I heard there's something you can do at GPs uh called called Play Magic. And I'm going to I'm going to attempt to uh, to find that activity and do it. No, 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 so no. They, they replaced they replaced playing <laughs> with with casting. Uh, they did that back. Casting. Like, oh, oh, okay, okay. Gonna, oh, right, right. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go sling play. spells. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> oh. um, so I don't know if the listeners know this, but me, Jess, and Brian were finally all in one place at one time during a recent um, judge conference in Atlanta. But it wasn't something where. You know, most of our listeners could actually see us all in one place at one time. <laughs> and we barely spoke with each other. But right. it, it did finally happen. We were all there. It I'm was... not even actually sure. If, like, it was very rare that all three of us actually spoke to each other because. Right. Well, because it was it was uh, I had like L2 testing. Conference? You had you had seminars. Uh, just just uh, just helped out with a, a, a seminar. CJ had a <laughs> seminar at a slightly different time. I was doing L2 testing. Mm-hmm. So I was off in a corner with people. And then when it came time to dinner for dinner, uh, I think it just kind of like. Well, at, since you and um, and Jess and I think 
Billy Willy with the three level threes there. You know, people wanted to talk to you guys. No one really wanted to talk to me, but you guys are busy interacting with everyone yeah, and, and it just kind of. That was such a new experience for me, too, because I'm used to, uh, you know, back where I was previously in San Jose, uh, we'd go to a judge conference and they'd have this this high level judge panel at the end of it, which was awesome because you get to see, you know, you'd have like uh, Toby Elliott and Sean Kent and and probably somebody else on there. Uh, answering questions for people and, JMO. and uh, yeah jmo jmo is a great example of that well then i go to this one in atlanta and they're like would you like to be on this panel we're having at the end with the, with l3 judges and i'm like me really <laughs> <laughs> what um and so that was a very interesting experience that everybody kind of wanted to talk to me um <laughs> we partly because i'm new in the area and partly because I'm a level three, so they want to ask me questions. And that's great. I loved it. It was just unexpected. So I'm, it's been an adjustment out here in the in the southeast region. All right. So the, Well, I, I have one more thing I want to say okay, about I the conference. Say, I inadvertently took us off topic. But I know that's you fine. are. How, however, uh, um, so one of the things we have uh, a survey uh, that we that all of the uh, the judges that attend these seminars, they fill out. Um and one of the things that they do is they rate the the seminar one through ten. They they have there's several questions like how informed do you think the presenter was, how prepared, things like that. And uh, uh, Mr. CJ had one of the most highly rated uh, seminar topics. His topic was on morph, and he did a good mix of uh, of of humor and rules. And one thing that he did very nicely to make things dynamic was he actually grabbed audience members up and made them the morph creatures <laughs> and physically turned them around and put signs on their fronts and on their backs. <laughs> and uh, and uh, when he tapped them, he would turn them sideways, you know, like actually tilt them. Um, and yeah. uh, and that went over very, very well. I and, mean, uh, Brian, you, you flatter me, but uh, I was actually the highest ranked seminar there uh, not, not one of no 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 you were number two who was number one i was number one i gotta i gotta look which no, one it was you're wrong you're wrong I, I, i'm gonna go i gotta pull zittimer's numbers <laughs> uh but yeah but if you want to hear that seminar just listen to episode 99 of judgecast it was <laughs> i mean really basically was, that yeah yeah um, unfortunately, the morph policy changed slightly like two weeks after I did it, but whatever. It, it is funny that when we go to seminars, the amount of times that we hear uh, something along the lines of, oh, yeah, I just listened to the episode of JudgeCast to prepare for this. It's yeah. Like, oh, uh, thanks. All right. <laughs> Last thing, Jared, you have a Twitter, right? Do you want people to follow you on Twitter? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> At Jared Silva, J-A-R-E-D-S-Y-L-V-A. All right. I'm, uh, I'm not as interesting or on there as frequently as I might want to be, but, uh, that might change. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, Jared, once again, thank you so much for being on. I, I think this was a, a great episode, very informative. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And I'd like to thank all the listeners for listening. My name is CJ Schrader and I keep it fair. I'm Jess Dunks. I keep it fun. I'm Brian Perlman. I'm rolling in my grave. <laughs> you said that earlier, right? I know. Sure, yeah, I'm I did. Sure yeah. You have, you have okay. like a plot set up that you've, you've gotten for yourself and you just go roll in it occasionally. <laughs>